Hi everyone, this is Alex Helberg here with another episode of Reverb. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Calvin Pollock. How you doing? For this episode, Calvin and I had the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Dana L. Cloud, Professor of Rhetoric and Communication at Syracuse University. Dr. Cloud has published prolifically in the field of rhetoric, most recently a book titled Reality Bites, which outlines the strategies that political actors on the right and the left have used to build mass movements around their ideas. This work is designed to begin a conversation about what we really need to do to win in politics, not just make ourselves feel better, more noble, or smarter than the great unwashed masses. Okay, Alex, I'm going to stop you there. Now, why do you think I care about politics at all? The whole point is feeling better than the unwashed masses, smarter than the unwashed masses, washed unlike the masses. Yeah, but doesn't that feel a little bit elitist to you? Yes, precisely. I love being elite, ennobled, part of an elect. The purpose of politics for me, I don't know about you, is feeling better about myself. (laughs) Politics for me is, you could say, a form of self-care telling people they're wrong, fact-checking them, pointing out logical fallacies, um, and getting epic burns and owns all over Twitter, retweeted hundreds of thousands of times, ideally by, you know, blue-check verified uh, liberal media stars for the New York Times or the Washington Post. I mean, that's that's great for stroking your ego, Calvin, but but how is that going to build a political movement? How do you intend to win election? How do you intend to win power with that? Uh, by telling people that if they don't retweet my stuff, they're canceled. <laughs> well, uh, I guess that's fair enough, but I think Dr. Cloud has a little bit of a different view of things. So I just ask that you maybe try and hear her out uh, to give her perspective a chance. All right. Let's go to that interview. Okay. All right, so welcome everyone. Uh, this is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Calvin Pollock. Uh, today we're thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Dana L. Cloud, professor in the Department of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University. Dr. Cloud's prolific career has included major contributions to the study of critical rhetoric, drawing on concepts from Marxist, feminist, and queer theory, and covering a variety of case studies, all the way from Oprah Winfrey's philanthropic enterprises to unionization efforts at Boeing and to the representation of Afghan women in in the discourse surrounding the U.S. war on terror. Her most recent book, published in early 2018, is titled Reality Bites. This timely book makes a compelling case that progressive activists, advocates, and scholars need to refocus their tactics of political persuasion away from strictly rational arguments and fact-checking and more towards integrating elements of storytelling, myth, affect and emotion, embodiment, and spectacle. Dana, thank you so much for being with us. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, so before we get into talking about the book, we, we did want to do a really quick news hit. Uh, so I don't know if you heard, but the, the great, and I'm being ironic, the great conservative intellectual Ben Shapiro spoke down the street at the University of Pittsburgh last night, and he is a, a so-called free speech advocate. Pitt's college Republicans are claiming that the university charged them an overly high security fee to bring Shapiro to campus, and that this is an example of how universities stifle conservative speech. So you are someone who has been personally involved in the broader campus free speech debate in recent years. Isn't that true? Yes. And can you just tell us a little bit about your experience and your broader views just of this debate? 
Okay. Uh, first, did the students respond at all to Shapiro? They did. did. They, they did. Yes. Did they there, there was a, there yes. was a major protest outside. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. So there was actually a, a demonstration by If Not Now, which is a progressive Jewish uh, organization, mm-hmm. and and they were protesting his you know white supremacist transphobic right. views right. and stuff like that. Well, thanks for filling me in on that. I had not I had not read about it. Strangely, it did not appear at the top of my newsfeed. So. Uh, yeah, my experience. I mean, over the course of my career, I've I've had sort of several rounds of harassment, and targeting for threats and cyberbullying. The latest one was in 2017, and I discovered that actual white supremacists and neo-Nazis were trolling me and started sending me all kinds of death threats, rape threats, threats to my dog. Um, knew where I lived, uh, the whole nine yards, in response to uh, something I said at a protest. And it was scary, and I think it was much more serious than the previous rounds of hate mail and so on that I had received. Because we are in this moment of white supremacism and creeping fascism, and people, you know, as we know from hate crimes and mass shootings, you know, people are emboldened. The thugs of the far right are emboldened to take action on their words. It's not just a virtual phenomenon. So I have talked a lot about that, but it is an example similar to the uh, Shapiro incident because it is about how the right cynically appropriates the tropes of free speech and even civility on campuses in order to kind of fool um, university administrators, if that's possible, to grant them an equal hearing as if their views were morally, politically, and intellectually comparable to the discourses that usually happen on campus of a critical nature. And so the appropriation of free speech and the denunciation of the left as enemies of free speech while upholding themselves as champions of free speech is a, a, an incredibly opportunistic and cynical move that unfortunately has some traction on the campuses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's even more, I mean, Calvin and I were talking before the show about how, I mean, the title of the talk was what you need to know about anti-Semitism. I mean, for Pittsburghers, this is a particularly oh, absolutely. Uh, big thing just being because we had the Tree of Life massacre. Just to put the show in context, this is only a couple of weeks after that incident. Um, so Shapiro was speaking directly to that and sort of making this case, at least in the clips that I did view before the show, that anti-Semitism is sort of, is sort of coming from the left, essentially. But to Jews worldwide, and to Jews more deeply over time, the clear answer to which of these types of anti-Semitism is most threatening is not the white supremacist threat. The real answer is institutionalized left-wing anti-Semitism, which works in combination with radical Islamic anti-Semitism at a high level. Even though, of course, we know for a fact that the shooter in that incident was was right-wing, he posted on message boards that were like explicitly right wing and made, you know, was I, was he a Trump supporter too? Or was there no, any, he, okay. Okay. He thought Trump was not far right enough. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that that's disgustingly ironic yeah. because anti-Semitism is part and parcel of the same conservatism that he's representing. And that massacre was horrific and it was extremely gross for him to use that moment in that way. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, yeah, your point about opportunism, I think, is well taken with with regard to free speech issues on campus. 
I want to make sure that we turn uh, now to your book, which, of course, as I mentioned before, is titled Reality Bites, Rhetoric and the Circulation of Truth Claims in Political Culture. Uh, so you present your argument in this book as a response both to theories and trends in rhetorical theory, as well as our current political moments in which you uh, we're faced, as you said, with an increasingly authoritarian right wing political movement or government uh, that is responding to an emboldened white nationalist popular movement and a resistance to it that seems to be reliant, I think, mainly on fact-checking, rational argumentation, other sorts of argumentative strategies like that. So what, in your opinion, is wrong with this response? Why, why is it not working? Well, there are at least two reasons why that rational and fact-checking sort of go-to-the-ground-of-empiricism approach is inadequate. One is that it's ineffective. Um, and that because it doesn't reach people at the level that they are thinking about politics. Um, I talk about the Stasis system where, you know, going to the definitional and, and uh, claims of, of uh, the Stasis of conjecture misses the point that people are, are arguing and thinking in terms of their values uh, and, and so on that can really be captured more in storytelling than in um, fact-checking. The second problem is about elitism wherein pundits on the liberal left, like Rachel Maddow and others, berate conservatives as idiots and as people who are ignorant, which apparently are the only reasons that anyone could have possibly voted for Donald Trump. And that is just not so. And just don't score any points in terms of building a broader coalition against Trump and against the rising far right by belittling ordinary people in that way. I found it really disheartening and continue to find it so. And there's an element of basically throwing facts at people as if they're idiots and if they only knew facts, then they would they would think correctly, which, um, again, is, is just not true. So there's a third uh, reason why it's not adequate, and that is that it denies its own rhetoricity, you know, that it's a, it's a, it's a rhetoric of empiricism that legitimates outlets like the Washington Post who posted that mass head democracy dies in darkness. Also the New York Times, also the FBI suddenly becomes the left's friend. When prior to the Trump administration, we were, we the left were incredibly skeptical and completely opposed to the operations of the deep state and also had serious ideological criticisms of the modalities of persuasion in mainstream news and in the papers of record. So suddenly these are our friends. The Hillary Clinton administration gets to be activist in orientation. I mean, a campaign, the Hillary Clinton campaign, you know, appears to be activist. And suddenly the left is actually disarmed by facts. Yeah, so so you have this term of rhetorical realism. Can you just define that for us and tell us kind of where it came out of theoretically? Well, you know, my whole career I've been battling relativists in the field, you know, from post-structuralists through autonomists like Hart and Negri through queer theorists like Judith Butler, uh, basically arguing that we need some kind of an extra discursive check in order to assess the fidelity of discourses to reality, right, reality. But I had not thought through the complexity of that reality. I mean, I can't say I never thought about it, but I felt polemically like I had to just keep insisting that, you know, the first Gulf War happened and that civilians were killed and that we need to refer to those extra discursive things in order to evaluate rhetoric. 
And so I was embroiled in a number of debates about the nature of materialism and about uh, the role of the critic and, um, you know, most notably with people like Ron Green and, and some others. And he and I have a very collaborative disagreement, uh, actually. We're, we're very good friends. So um, nothing, no hate, no hating on Ron Green. <laughs> Frankly, now with the new sort of object-oriented and post-humanist frames for theory, I think Deleuze and Guattari and Foucault are wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just lay that down and say that any critique that actually can describe a totality, that can think about resistance, is fantastic. Giving agency to objects and arguing that we can't capture the category of the human for agency, these things are extremely troubling to me. But backing up, so then I started really thinking through this reality problem, and my mom says, that's not big. So, so what are you writing on reality? That's not big. Uh, so, and, and really, that started well before the Trump administration, of course, with Karl Rove's uh, declaration to the journalists that you fools live in the reality-based community. We who are powerful are making reality. We create reality, and then you're just left to follow along and study it. And right, the recognition that that's just absolutely true. That is a fact, if you will. And so trying to figure out that it's not a matter of the truth versus ideology or mystification. It's about the struggle for hegemony on political terrain of contending truths. And so choosing whose side are you on and whose truths do you want to circulate more broadly as common sense in society, which are not the truths of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh or Karl, Karl Rove or, or Donald Trump, that the, the, the truths of ordinary people have not circulated successfully enough to challenge that hegemony of both conservatism and of mainstream liberalism. Yeah, and, and at the core of your theory of rhetorical realism, one of the concepts that I heard you bring up as you were talking through it is fidelity, yes. right? This idea of whether or not certain claims have fidelity to lived experience. Could you talk a little bit more about how you see that as a standard for, uh, for evaluating rhetorical things and inventing in ones too? It's kind of a loose standard, um, and I, I acknowledge that. I mean, everybody who cites Walter Fisher on this question about uh, narrative coherence and narrative fidelity, I mean, he went way out of style. You know, I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, I, I really actually like his project very much and adopted this term fidelity to refer to evaluating beliefs on the basis of their faithfulness to the interests of the people whom they are speaking for and with. So determining, you know, that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's interests were not in the truth claims that Kavanaugh was circulating, that and the things that she said were hailing women who have been saying me too, me too, me too, in a way that was faithful to their interests and voices to a large degree. So being able to say those things, though, requires side taking, you know, and basically a recognition that there are alternative knowledges and that there has been a great deal of what people are calling epistemic injustice and that bringing new knowledges to the table and doing so in a forceful and persuasive way is crucially important, and winning consent, winning people's belief in them, so I call it a rhetoric of belief in that way, but which is not to say that things are not true or real, it is that whose truth is it, whose reality is it, whose reality gets credence, and whose reality is being violated 
Yeah, so toward that end of getting subaltern or oppressed knowledges to be given that kind of credence, you identify five strategies or maybe we could call them aspects of discourse mm-hmm. that you view the right as having really kind of used to great effect that you think the left should mm-hmm. embrace as well, or at least to a certain extent. Right. So I was wondering if we could just go through each one, sure. kind of rapid uh-huh. fire. The big five. <laughs> the big yeah, five. the big five. Uh-huh. We right. love that yep. term. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and talk about them. So the first was affect and emotion. Right. Affect is a really interesting term in this context because I understand affect and affect theory to, to basically posit feelings as a, a pre and proto rhetorical discursive set of intensities that are felt in the body that are not yet given shape. Um, And then when rhetoricians try to capture them and give them shape, that is when they become emotions and then they become rhetorically deployable. And so I really appreciate affect theory. In fact, I have an essay co-authored in RSQ on affect music and revolutionary social movements, which I recommend um, because it was sort of a first try at figuring out how affect and emotion are produced and and captured and used in revolutionary political discourse. I'm not naive about sort of the not automatic that affect is liberatory. It can be wild and uncontrolled, but populists, um, nationalists, and white supremacists have a tremendously successful history of grabbing onto the affects of fear and anxiety and outrage and projecting them toward despised minorities and speaking to and for ordinary people as if it is in their interest to buy into that. And so I I just read an article about how Trump speaks American, and that's why he was successful. And so it's kind of like a weird double discourse, like you're speaking American, ordinary people, American sort of bandwagon thing, and you're speaking elite also at the same time. I haven't studied that yet. So anyway, so that, affect and emotion. So actually that's a really powerful thing, and I think if you walk into a country and western bar in Texas and you sit down and you want to have a political conversation, the best place to start is with how people are feeling. Um, and then asking them why they are feeling that way and how do they interpret those feelings and how, where did they learn those interpretations, not with you know some kind of set of facts that is not going to take into account their legitimate outrage and anxiety in this particular historical moment. Yeah, it's almost kind of like validating the way that somebody is feeling in order to sort of open up a dialogue about or a further dialogue about conflict resolution. And knowing like that, that yeah. that's where discourse, it doesn't always start there, but it's where it can be captured, that it can be met in such a way that does honor and does not belittle another person. So affect and emotion is closely connected to big five number two, Mm -hmm. which is embodiment. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, they are very closely connected, but to the extent that a rhetorical text can enable someone to feel bodily invested, theorists have talked about how moving your body through certain situations and if experiencing things in your body is a kind of training in adherence. And so I have friends, Casey Kelly and Kristen Hurl, former PhD student, writing about the Creation Museum in this way. And, you know, I, I think I make 
a joke in my book about children right being able to ride dinosaurs alongside models of humans, right? <laughs> and it kind of gets you into the in, into the modality that yes, we are animals and we lived in the, alongside each other, and that history, the timeline is very short, and children can feel that in their bodies then. And so the left can use embodiment also, and I think you see that happen in protests, in song, in collective gatherings and marches. So. So another another theorist and concept that you mentioned earlier was uh, Walter Fisher, uh, who you reference in your book as well, as kind of inventor of what what's called the narrative paradigm, right? right? And that's a bit another one of aspect of your big five. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah, as well? narrative and myth go together, and narrative is simply storytelling, but it enables people to invest through the point of view of of protagonists and to encounter differential knowledges and ideologies and and sort through them in a way that addresses their identity and their values and connect with people in a way that is still rational. I mean, Fisher said that that there's a narrative rationality. And throughout the book, I'm just basically saying that these strategies are not in and of themselves irrational. They're not irrational. Affect is not irrational. What's funny, though, I think, is that all of these are kind of terms that get used as pejoratives. Like, oh, you're you're stuck in a narrative. Yeah, you're buying into this narrative, right? Yes. exactly. So what we should do instead of saying, oh, you're just buying into this narrative, here are some facts, you should say, what are the components of that narrative? How might I challenge and posit an alternative narrative? I mean, I talk about that a lot in the chapter on fact-checking in the abortion videos, where I, I talk about the feebleness of Planned Parenthood's response to the publisher of those videos, which are really compelling and I'm you know completely pro-choice and I was moved by them I was moved by them trying to figure that out there's a kind of humility to that you know I thought about how would we challenge that because those videos frame providers as greedy monsters um, who were murdering people you know babies whereas we could ha- we could imagine a narrative frame in which the providers were heroes uh, working long hours saving women's lives supporting gender equality in society and that there might be a way to do that rather than they all these little lawsuits sure you lost some lawsuits but it didn't negate the impact of those videos yeah so we kind of talked about narrative and myth hand in hand the final concept from the big five is spectacle can you talk a little bit about what that means i think that the progressive left and the hard left, I mean, don't always reject a spectacle. I mean, um, especially when it comes to big protest marches and the puppets and so on. But I, you know, I've been organizing in a sector of the left, the revolutionary socialist left, that does kind of disdain those modalities of expression, although not so much anymore. I mean, I, I think we're really getting on the ball with regard to the big five. And I organize with many people who study sport and literature and music as expressions of political resistance. So I don't mean to say blank in a blanket way, but I do mean to say that in the political context, people will say, you know, you're falling for the spectacle or um, that's just an image event, you know, or as if, you know, spectacle uh, were completely irrational and not a valuable form of political engagement. And Chris Hedges, I think I talk about him. He's completely anti-spectacle. It's an easy, it's an easy foil. And I really like Chris Hedges' work. So, but basically, if we don't attend to the spectacular, which is the imagistic mainly, and the the grandiose, the awesome, awe-inducing, transcendent 
kind of modality that can really get people attached, Murray Edelman is great on this question, then we are really losing out on, on a powerful resource, which can be used in projects of mass um, resistance in a really incredible way. And Colin Kaepernick is just an example. Um, so, so I talk about celebrity as an, as an example of spectacle that, you know, taking a knee at football games, which are the spectacles of our society, they are, you know, like the major sort of circus in the bread and circuses, that that is used as a space for politics as much as anything else and perhaps to much greater effect. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the pitfalls of using these strategies? That's something that I want to ask. So, I mean, I think maybe part of why those sectors of the revolutionary left are skeptical of these or or maybe in a knee-jerk way react negatively to these strategies is because they, if used naively, could reinforce some of the ideological tendencies that the left is trying to counter. Mm, is yeah. that... Well, you know, my argument is basically that none of these modalities can be inherently dangerous, that they are simply affordances, uh, they are rhetorical affordances, and where the danger lies um, is in in, um, the mediators, the people who are intervening in political discourse in trying to figure out what is a faithful message, what could we do that would actually speak to ordinary people in a way that resonates with them, that doesn't betray them in massive ways. But, of course, no one can get it perfectly right. And who, and, who, and then this is the controversy thing, too, which is who's to say? Um, who's to say what's in people's interest? I think listening to people would be a good first start. Um, <laughs> I have a really decent example of this in um, the teacher strikes that swept the South yeah. earlier this year, where most of the women, uh, mostly women who were on strike winning huge gains, yeah. were Trump voters. And when um, socialists, as we are wont to do, go to strikes to support labor, discovered something kind of unexpected, which is that when you speak to people's anxieties um, and values from the left, that it can be as warmly received as from the hard right. They're they're all saying, well, the you know the wonky Hillary Clinton and the liberal establishment does not speak for me. That is not a faithful discourse. Something collective that meets working class anxiety and and the feeling of ordinary people, which is quite right, that they are not in control of their futures. Anybody who meets that exigence can actually work really well with people and actually involve them in the creation of discourse that expresses that resistance, which is exactly what happened. I mean, so many of the leaders of that movement were drawn to the left, um, started appearing on left panels and uh, videos, I mean, and just honestly thought, oh, aha, you know, that it, there is there is an explanation that makes sense, and Clinton and Trump are not our only choices. Yeah, I I really I personally really am drawn to the big five as concepts for doing rhetorical analysis and, you know, study thinking about rhetorical theory. It seems like I mean, they're calling attention to what it seems like rhetorical theory has been coming around to in the past couple of decades, which is acknowledging all these all these other domains of human experience that go beyond just what goes on in our heads. Right. (laughs) Beyond the rational mind. It's kind of interesting that, I mean, it's, you know, it's taken us a while to dig ourselves out from just, you know, purely this enlightenment conception of the human uh, as just being a thinking uh, sort of being. But but yeah, we're also people who are moved by, you know, things like affect and emotion. 
Yeah. I actually think that affect theorists and queer theorists would um, say that they got there a lot sooner. Yes. Uh, oh, abso- so, no, absolutely. I mean, they I'm did. Just, yeah. Uh, no, we're, well, we're give catching a shout up. out to that. Although yeah. I reject um, either a celebratory affect theory mm-hmm. or a relativist affect theory. Mm. So I, I had a, a question as I was reading through uh, your uh, the theory of rhetorical realism and the big five and how they can be effective in uh, making these arguments. One thing that I had kind of been thinking about was the extent to which identity and the ethos of a speaker who's trying to employ these strategies matters in those kinds of uh, exchanges as well, whether they be between, you know, scholars, activists and the public, or even just in like an interpersonal conversation, right? So in other words, you know, if I'm speaking to a person, you know, coming from my position as, you know, somebody who is an academic who comes from the quote unquote liberal academy, I mean, to put it bluntly, wouldn't they just be prone to think that I'm not worth listening to if I have that sort of identity, even if I'm employing some of those really compelling strategies. So ethos is um, complicated and it has everything to do with fidelity and not betraying people. So one thing is that ethos can be constructed in the rhetorical moment. So you don't come in only with your reputation for better or worse, thankfully, because then none of us would ever get to talk to people at all. But what I discovered, for example, in the Boeing book, to tie that in, that I followed Democratic Unionists around for about 10 years in Wichita and Seattle, and my chair, my college, or like, why isn't your book coming out? Why isn't your book coming out? And I'm like, I don't know. I feel like literally I have to walk the walk with these people and do justice to their knowledge and identities. And it really did take that long. I mean, what I felt it as was an ethical problem that I was having. So, so basically, I always have this this image of you know going into that country and western bar and sitting at the bar and talking to people and even if they know you're an academic or not an academic I mean just not jumping into you know a political analysis you're watching sports or you're watching the news on the big screen and you can say hey yeah what do you think about that this happened to me at the train station it kind of got out of control but <laughs> but I let it like I didn't like say and you're wrong you know um and uh but, but basically and then trying to echo back what people are saying in terms of their affect their values and then tell stories from your life, talk about your feelings too, so that you're disclosing and basically creating a big five moment, you know, that, that you can share with someone for real, for that is authentic. And it might involve country and Western dancing. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so again, it, with the embodiment, you can share the space with people. I mean, that's just one, one thought. I, I, that actually never happened to me in a bar. It has happened to me in other places. But I, that's the, I, li- I like to imagine, what would I do if I went in a bar and sat down next to a Trump voter and they wanted to talk about politics? What would I do? You know, So, so create it in the moment. There's a way to do that. Oh, I wanted to say, though, Um, that all of the big five strategies, obviously, no matter how well we use those, there will be massive material constraints arrayed against us. And mainly, I see them as being used to organize the mass force of our side, not to try to influence the public at large. You know, let's win over a bunch of conservatives in the mass media, because we don't have access to those resources. So, So basically, trying to rally our side to move our side, which includes people who disagree with each other profoundly, some people who are not recognizing their interests, again, controversial. Um, (laughs) So uh, I'm just gonna keep marking that, but uh, that, 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 that we have to win, we have to win, and we have to win the people around us. And so I'm not gonna go try to win Brett Kavanaugh or Donald Trump or, you know, 
any other people who are in charge of the society, and I don't really want to call for the persuading of undifferentiated mass. So I bring in hegemony theory to talk about how we're trying to build a counter-hegemonic movement, and we need to do this rhetorical work with people who are technically or, or mostly our equals. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually about shifting the ruling hegemony, or it is in the long, in the very long term, but in the yeah. short term, it's about rallying our side. We can try to shift the cultural hegemony. Like I think the Me Too movement, I think Black Lives Matter, I think there are a number of watershed moments in politics lately that are shifting and mass reaction to Trump's administration, although I think he is being totally underestimated. But counter-hegemony has to have a material base. So we can do all the persuading we want to, but, I mean, as a revolutionary socialist, I think we will need, in order to establish our truths truly as reality, we we will need a revolutionary transformation that involves our bodies. Yeah, no, I, I I think another one of the reasons that I really like a lot of the a lot of the work that you put forward in this book is that it kind of also it makes me think about my own role as a you know a rhetoric scholar or a rhetorical critic in a different way too, right? I'm not just somebody who's sitting in a room, <clears throat> you know, writing manuscripts and other things like that. I can also be somebody who goes out into the world and interacts with people, right? You know, in a way that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about how that functions as an inventional strategy for you as a critical scholar, as an activist? Well, and I've, I've given that a sort of interpersonal um, a- example, but I also am a social movement activist. And so in um, speeches, in chants, in marches, in signs, and so on, of course I and many other people try to employ the, the big five, to, to become recognized and to to garner uh, attention in a spectacular way. I also think that you can use narrative and affect to organize people to demonstrate in a materially forceful way, like in a strike, um, which doesn't necessarily rely so much on the spectacular. Although, I mean, the, the image from history of the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968 where the men, the black men, are holding signs that say huge, in huge letters, simply, I am a man. I mean, that, uh, which, at, which at the time, of course, means I am a human being, so profoundly gripping all the way down to sort of the core of, of society and oppression. So I wanted to mention on that, on that last point about revolutionary change about Tom Paine, yeah. Um, yeah. because Tom Paine... In Common Sense, which is a great title, although he wanted to call it The Plain Truth and Ben Franklin stole it. Um, So thank God he didn't call it The Plain Truth, otherwise not useful to me. So Tom Paine used the Big Five in such a way as to galvanize a revolutionary public to support a war. So it took a war to have a, a revolution. You can't have the revolution in the storytelling and the spectacle and so on. You can't, you know what I mean? So it took a war. So he was readying people and winning them to a revolution. And I, and I do think that that's the kind of transformation it'll take for true epistemic justice to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that term common sense is really kind of perfect for that yeah. in that you're trying to, yeah, you're try, we're trying belief. to. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Could, could I add one more thing that Please. we might add back yeah. in? Yeah. Um, which is about the constraints that are arrayed against us yes. and about how we're not totally in control. Like, we can try to spin yeah. some narratives, but it's the Snowden-Manning chapter that I think reveals the problem that we are constrained not only by material interest but also by ideological 
blinders so that 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 allowed someone like Edward Snowden to be cast as a superhero in his own movie um, and a spy thriller and Chelsea Manning to be cast as pathological and without credibility without ethos at all so that points to the ideological forces that are at work in constraining what we can achieve even when we attempt you know the big five yeah yeah absolutely well i think that about does it for us so thank you yeah dana thank you so much for being it's with wonderful. us this has been wonderful been yeah thank it really so has much. of course and we will uh heavily publicized the book for you through this podcast. Yes, absolutely. So we're, we're, as much we, as we, we want more and more people to read this <laughs> because yes. we want we want the left to win. Yes, so. we do. <laughs> yes. We we have a duty to win. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Background research for this episode was conducted by Caitlin Rossi, and our co-producers are Ryan Mitchell, Colleen Storm, Ilona Altman, and Sophie Wadzik. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in. Not just make ourselves feel better or more noble or smarter uh, than the great unwashed masses. <clears throat> Wait, actually, okay. I think you should do it again because you said mashes. Not masses. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I'll start from I'll start from one of the last lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>